Let's read the very words of God together. Romans chapter 12, starting verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing or the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for all that you're doing. Father, I must admit in your presence, I feel like you are taking us so seriously which is a good thing and a sobering thing and a severe thing. Father, I do pray that by your grace and the Spirit in our midst, you would empower us with the resurrection life of Christ to both hear your words and respond in a way that is good and acceptable and pleasing in your sight. And that, Lord Jesus, you would do something glorious for your kingdom. Father, thank you for our brothers and sisters at Southland. Uh, a few thousand of them praying with us this week for the sale of our building. Uh, their goodwill and their good nature towards us. What a treasure. What a treasure to have a friend in Chris. I love him. And I pray, Father, that you would do a great thing for your city and Canada and the world. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right. Um, Let's do our best to get right into this, and uh, I, I want you to know that um, this might get a little messy, and that's okay. What do you think it means to be a living sacrifice to God? It's an important question to answer because it's something we're all told to do. We're starting in the second half of the book of Romans. It's the longest epistle, the longest letter in the New Testament. It's the most thorough um, explanation of our faith in the Bible um, from the Apostle Paul. And he's transitioning from talking about every good and powerful thing that God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ to save us and to create a people for his name in the world. And he transitions from the describing what God has done phase of the letter to the teaching us how to respond phase of the letter. And he encapsulates the entire call to respond to God well for everything he has done for us in Jesus by saying, come now and present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. So it would be good to have an idea of what he's saying there. Sacrificing is messy business. I, I've never been to a sacrifice has anybody here been to a sacrifice? There are places in the world they still do it. They don't do it in Canada, and I think it would probably be against the law, either for the killing the animal part or just because you're, like, slaughtering an animal without an inspector nearby, which is also a weird thing in human history. But, um, and that is actually a testimony to the gospel, 
human nature is that we commit animal sacrifice until Jesus came to be the last sacrifice. And so wherever you meet a culture where they don't sacrifice animals anymore, it's probably got Christian roots because Jesus puts an end to the sacrifice of living creatures. But all of the readers and hearers of the letter at Paul's time would be saturated with um, knowledge of what it means to bring a sacrifice, to bring an animal. Most of the time in, in the Old Testament, you could bring grain for different kinds of sacrifices. But the main sacrifice would be to bring an animal, whether it's a dove or a lamb, sometimes an ox, and to sacrifice it. And that was messy business. It involved usually uh, slitting the animal's throat and having all the blood gush out. And often it meant trying to capture the blood in a bowl or something like that and then splattering things with the blood. The, the priests were meant to like splatter and alter. So it involved throwing blood around. And then you'd actually process the animal. It would mean like cutting its guts out, pulling out the poo-poo parts and getting rid of those things in the right place and then taking the good fat parts and burning that up and ripping the skin off of this animal and doing something with that. And depending on the offering, sometimes you burned everything up and sometimes you just burned up the best parts and you might share in a meal with God as part of your sacrifice. But it's messy business that involved something dying. And so it's a bit of a contradiction for the Holy Spirit to say, now you present yourself as a living sacrifice. How do you live as a sacrifice that, where you don't die? That's what's going on here. Have you thought about that? Would you say that this is how you live? Like I was saying before, this isn't a... Uh, Pastors present your life as a living sacrifice or missionaries present your life as a living sacrifice. This is every single Christian. This is the command of God for how to respond to what God has done for you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, my family in Jesus, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship, And I wonder, you know, you think, well, why present your body, right? Aren't we a heart religion? Isn't it about what's going on in our heart, our faith? Well, when he says to us, present your bodies, he's not saying don't bring your heart, but he's also saying don't forget the rest of you. Because one of the ways Christians fall down sometimes is that we go around saying, I believe in Jesus in my heart, but nobody can tell that we believe in Jesus by what we do with our bodies. And what God's getting at is it's, it's the whole deal. There isn't one hair on our heads that Jesus didn't buy with his blood. And every single square centimeter of it, from the skin to the guts and all the way back out again, is meant to glorify God by how we act, behave, live, think, feel, breathe, relate, Spend, save, earn, and everything in between. So what I want to do from here, and we're just getting into this, is I want to do two things. 
I want to talk about not being conformed to the world with one specific and maybe a second bonus example, if you're lucky. And then I want to talk about the specific command later on in the same chapter to not be slothful in zeal, but to be boiling in the spirit. All right? So when Paul is saying every single Christian is meant to bring our whole selves, our bodies, as a living sacrifice to God, meaning engage in a messy process of dying to honor God, the first thing he says after this is to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by having a renewed mind. So the first thing he talks about is being a Christian means going through the process of changing how you think. Rejecting the various ways that the world thinks about everything and having our minds conform to the mind of Christ in truth, resulting in us being powerfully transformed in how we live. Clear? When you become a Christian, when you believe in Jesus and get filled with the Spirit and are justified in God's sight and declared righteous by a free gift, and you're called to this life of living sacrificially to Jesus, the first place Paul goes here is how you think. Because maybe you haven't thought about this recently, but what we think is one of the most precious things to anybody, right? Don't, don't you love to be right? Because what you think is right. And you don't like it when a bunch of idiots are wrong in your presence. Amen? Because your thoughts are right. And Paul says, when you're climbing on the altar, the first thing that needs to have the blade of the knife dragged across its throat is any of your rightness that disagrees with God. What? Ouch. I'm, I'm getting the tingles right now. Like, ugh. Scary stuff. I could be wrong, but I'm not because I'm right. I could be wrong, but I wonder if one of the first things that God would come to a Canadian Christian and confront us on, calling us to no longer be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of our mind, would be one specific aspect of our culture would, that would be this. We are not great at taking responsibility for ourselves. And as Christians in Canada, we are not great at taking spiritual responsibility for ourselves. Which I can summarize as this. Taking spiritual responsibility for yourself means no matter what anybody else is doing, has done, or will do, I am always required to believe in Jesus and obey him. 
That is spiritual responsibility. No matter what anybody else is doing, has done, or will do, no matter what events have happened in my life, are happening in my life, or do happen in my life, I am always required by God to present myself as a living sacrifice to Him. Period. In our culture, everything is an excuse not to believe in Jesus. Everything is a potential excuse to not obey him. Everything is a potential reason to continue in sin and commit more sin and to persevere in unbelief and persevere in ungodliness. Everything is a potential excuse for us. True? Should I start listing some of the, the major topics off? Your mom is a potential excuse to not believe in Jesus. Your dad is a potential excuse to not obey Christ. Your childhood church experience has a potential excuse to not present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Your current church experience is a potential excuse for you to not just obey Jesus. I am many people's excuse to not just obey Jesus. Your wife is one of your biggest excuses to not just obey Jesus, whether you're still with her or not. Your husband is one of your biggest potential excuses to say, I don't have to just believe God and obey him. Your health is one of your biggest potential excuses. I don't have to just trust God and obey him because and do you want to spend the rest of your life living like this? One of the craziest things about this passage, you know, we can always think whenever we come to the Bible that when Paul is talking to people and Holy Spirit is talking to people, that these people all had their lives figured out and they had everything so easy, all the money they want, their marriages were great, and their kids always listen to them. Their lives were harder than all of ours. If they got sick, they just died. And it took a while. And the only thing they had as far as painkillers was booze, which is expensive. There's no like booze price augmentation program where the government would pay for half of their alcohol so that they could be drunk while they died of dysentery. (laughs) Most of the parents that Paul was writing this church letter to in this church would have buried multiple children and the ones that did survive half of the sons would die in war and a bunch of the daughters would die in childbirth we just need to humble ourselves these words are written to people who suffer but the thing that twists the knife for me is the fact that 
writing to people with real lives, Paul doesn't say, accept the fact that you're a living sacrifice to the Lord and grin and bear it. He says, you present yourself to a process that you're going to die in. Not run away or not prolong the inevitable by hiding. You show up at temple. You say, my turn to get on the altar. You go, and expose your neck to the blade. That's your job, Rob, says Paul. And there are some stories in the Bible where we see people living like this. I can't not think about the story of Abraham and Isaac. Do you remember that story? Where Abraham has, has not had a child for a hundred years. And for about 70 of those, he's wanted one. And his wife Sarah is barren, and who knows if it was Abraham's fault or Sarah's fault or whatever, but they could not have a child together. And by miracle, and having waited a long time, God finally provides the miracle child of Isaac. And Sarah has a baby when she's, what, like 90 or something like that? And after some years, and Isaac's a bit older, God shows up to to Abraham one time and says, I want you to take your son, your, your, your beloved son, and I want you to take him to a place and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And Abraham's response is, according to scripture, Abraham woke up early the next morning and started gathering his supplies for the trip. And when they finally get to the place, which incidentally, the hill that this all happened on was the same place that they built the temple in Jerusalem and Abraham and Isaac are going up the hill and Isaac's like where's the sacrifice dad and Abraham says to him God will provide and they actually go through the process of binding Isaac and he gets on the altar and this is the thing we often don't get when we're reading this story if you do the math Isaac is like a teenager he's not three and his dad's like 115 or something like that which means if Isaac didn't want to participate, do you think he could have stopped it? Have you ever seen a fight between a 15-year-old male and a 115-year-old man? <laughs> well, there's a reason. It's called hospice. You're pulling the guy out of the bed to wash his bed sores. One of the subtexts of that story is that Isaac actually did present himself as a sacrifice. And God spared his life in it. But there was a father some years later who actually did present his son and allow his son to present himself as a sacrifice. And that father is a father God and that son was the Lord Jesus who many years later actually did go up the hill carrying his cross to be sacrificed and didn't stop it even though he could. I... I, there's some scriptures that just go into your head without trying. And one of the ones, I think it's in Matthew, is when the disciples are kind of rushing the guards who have come to arrest Jesus. And he stops them and he says, don't you think that if I wanted, I could call and I could get a myriad of angels to come and save me from this? Don't you think they would show up if I said, Gabriel, I don't want them to touch me ever again. He alone could have killed everybody in Jerusalem. And he said, I, I can call on all the hosts of heaven to save me if I wanted to, but I'm, it's my job to go and, and be a sacrifice. 
So when we read, present yourself, present your body as a living sacrifice, Jesus is the one who went before us. He's the one who journeyed to Jerusalem, and he's the one who held the Passover, and he's the one who went to the garden where he knew that Jesus would know where he was so he could get captured, and he's the one who went with the guards in order to get tortured, and he's the one who stood silent while Pilate condemned him, and he's the one who walked after his beatings and during the scourgings up to Golgotha, which is where Calvary Chapel gets its name, and he's the one who allowed them to pierce him and nail him to the cross and hold him there until he died. Every single second, an act of will to be a sacrifice because he could have stopped it at any time. Blah! Or to, to bring it home, Jesus could have found many excuses to not participate with what was going on and was able to stop it, but he didn't. Because he wanted to be presenting himself as a holy and acceptable object of worship to his Father. Maybe you're the exception, and maybe you never struggle with or give into excuses for doing what you know to be right according to the Word of God. But it would be rare. It's rare here. And right now, this is the biggest fight of my life, is remembering in every uncomfortable situation, my job is to believe God and obey his word. In every difficult moment, my job is to trust Jesus and do the best that I know to be right in his sight. It feels like you're dying because you are. Dying to pride, dying to selfishness, dying to self-preservation, dying to this false Christian religion where we think that we can have Jesus and our best life that we want now. It's not true. 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 I can have Jesus and no pain. I can have Jesus and keep all my money. I can have Jesus and have everyone like me. I can have Jesus and have my favorite church experience. I can have Jesus and have my best worship experience. I can have Jesus and Rob will have short sermons. I can have Jesus and everything I could want. No, 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 no. We want Jesus. We want Jesus. We want Jesus and we get Jesus. We want Jesus and we have Jesus. We want Jesus and we get all that Jesus has. And sometimes you get healed and sometimes you don't. And sometimes you get rich and sometimes you lose a lot. And sometimes everything works out and sometimes you're watching the mushroom cloud of your hopes and dreams go higher and higher as that entire field is irradiated for the next 150 years. And I just, in my head while we were worshiping, I was just, and I, all morning I've been thinking about this thing, and, I, and the, the pains often, so often, with life and church life and work life and parent life and kids life, is we can be stuck thinking, if that thing I fear happens, I'm going to lose my life. Someone's trying to take my life. Someone's trying to ruin my life. And I just wonder if, with the love and directness that God alone can do if he might respond to us one time saying why do you still have a life to lose 
You're not even supposed to have one of those. You're supposed to have put it on the altar. Do you know what I mean by that? I don't want to lose my job. It's a big part of my life. Why do you have a life? I thought I was your life, declares the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to be gracious because I know that history hurts and we all have wounds and these are important and valid to be hurt by very often and could use some healing and are good to get into the light and get free from. But, but, but let each one of us not be conformed to the belief that whatever has happened is our God and has the right to tell us what to do and think and feel and determine our destinies. And let us not limit our Lord by what has happened in the past. Another one of these scriptures that I live with without trying is this scene from Ezekiel. Remember, Ezekiel was a prophet during the worst time in the history of Israel. Israel had been in the land for a long time, and then the kingdom was cut in half, and there was just like Judah there, and sometimes they had a good king, and sometimes they had a bad king. And God was destroying Jerusalem because of their multi-century resistance to God's will. And he'd summoned the king of Babylon to come and ruin Jerusalem. And it took two tries. But after the first try, God raised up Ezekiel in Babylon as a prophet. Which is one, maybe the only time that I know of in scripture, besides Moses in Egypt getting his call, that a prophet was raised up while he was in a foreign land. And Ezekiel is living with these these people who have been literally kidnapped out of their country. All of them would have had dead family members. Most of them would have been brutalized by soldiers during the process, made to walk hundreds of kilometers from their homeland to go and spend the rest of their lives in another place. It was a political policy that they felt like if you got people away from their homes, they wouldn't fight you as much. And so they they exiled them into Babylon, and Ezekiel's there. And they start to grumble and blame their problems on the preceding generations. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't that be normal? You mean I could spend my entire life in Babylon because my parents couldn't stop worshiping the sun god? This is my fault. What do I have to put up with this stuff? Oh, I can't believe I'm stuck here. And so they came up with this saying where they would about sour grapes and this is what the Lord says to Ezekiel. It says, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Okay, this is their... Pro- our, our dads messed up our lives. Mom and dad ate sour grapes and now the children's teeth are messed up. And it was a proverb to say, We didn't do this, we don't deserve it. And this is God's response. He says, as I live. Now, whenever God says, as I live, he means it. Declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Okay, so this is Old Testament before we put God through his anger management classes. 
made him palatable for Canadians where he's always nice and he's never angry and he never does anything that makes us upset. He's always there fulfilling our hopes and dreams. I'm totally just vomitously joking. This is Jesus talking. He says this, I'm sick of hearing people blaming their parents for their lives. Everybody belongs to me. Fathers and sons, mums and daughters, they all belong to me, and whoever sins is going to die. <laughs> Meaning what? Wherever you are, whatever's happening, your job is to be right with God and leave the details up to Him. Whatever's happened to you or might happen to you, the only thing that can ruin your life is your own sin. The only thing that can really rob your future is your own unbelief. The only thing that can send you to hell is your own rejection of Jesus Christ, not anybody else's. And if we walk with God, nothing is impossible. If we walk by faith with eyes fixed on Jesus raised from the dead, all things are possible. Do you hear me? This is, why, why, Rob, would you preach such an uncomfortable sermon that everyone's going to complain about over lunch today? Why preach such an uncomfortable sermon where everyone's going, well, I know Rob, and he's like this, and he failed that, and he messed, he offended my family member, and he did this, and he's such a jerk. Why would you preach a sermon like this? Because we're the only ones who can mess up this move to 305 Main Street. And it will be our unbelief that does it, period. And we have the best God. We worship a man who was dead and now lives forever, who dispenses righteousness like candy on Halloween. Yes, I said it. For free, for everyone who believe that he raises the dead and that he gives righteousness for free, you will live forever. He is so generous. He is the best God. And we have the best faith. We don't have to kill animals anymore. We don't have to kill each other anymore. The only person that needs to die is Robert Balfour for all of my dreams to come true. We have the best future. A few decades of absolute crap and garbage and then unlimited heaven for eternity. We have the best everything. And miracles and power and forgiveness and change and hope and successes and a whole lot of kindness and fun along the way along with sufferings if we'll endure them for God's glory and our own too. And the price of of miracles and glory is this one thing. You have to present your body to Christ as a living sacrifice. We respond to all the goodness of God that's given for free by saying, then it only makes sense that everything that you've given to me, I would give back to you. Even if it's a mess and it costs me. This is what sacrifice does. You take something valuable 
and you transfer it to somebody else to show value to them, right? That, you take a lamb. What does a lamb cost nowadays? Anybody? Somebody? Somebody's going to know something. We live in Steinbeck. Nobody can just shout out how much a lamb costs these days. Oh, well, maybe that's a sign we've transitioned. We're, we're no longer a small Manitoba town because nobody knows how much a lamb is worth. Uh, we're, not, we're a big city now. Yeah. I bet you could tell me how much a, a, like an ounce of weed costs. <laughs> Don't shout it out. I mean, we'll forgive you and love you, but you're going to have people laying hands on you after the service if you do it. <laughs> big city! Big city! Okay, let's just say it costs 500 bucks. You take your 500 buck lamb... You destroy it in order to say that God is worth a lot more than 500 bucks. This is what it is. We're ready to take our valuable lives, and they are valuable, especially to us, and we are willing to destroy it to, to, to tell God the truth that he is worth so much more than every day we could ever live. So good. All right. So here we go. That part's done. If you're struggling with the message right now, maybe I'll just say this. I know I probably do worse at um, not giving in to excuses to disobey Jesus than most of us here. So if you want to throw me under the bus, I'll try to get the wheels just to run over my legs. So what can we do? Well... A few verses later, there's this wonderful line in Scripture where Paul is giving us lots of little commands about how we can pursue living this life of faith in Jesus and presenting our lives to Jesus. Verse 11 of chapter 12 of Romans, he says, Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in the Spirit, serve the Lord. And that fervent in, in Greek, I'm going to do it, uh, is, it means to boil. And it gives you a better picture. What does fervent mean? I don't know. It's like having a fever? A little bit, probably, but that doesn't sound good. So you know when you're making spaghetti and you crank the pot up all the way and then your kids start fighting in the living room and you get distracted and you come back and the pot is just going for it because it's been on high for five minutes? That's what the Christian life is supposed to look like. Like an overflowingness of energy. And so this is what I want to call us to. How can we be boiling in the Spirit to serve the Lord? How can we help it so that Jesus is getting the best of our energy? I don't think quit your job, but how at your job can Jesus get the best of your energy, the best of your attention, the best of your time, the best of your joy? If it sounds like I'm ruining your life, oh, I've got to be excited about Jesus. Guess what? There's a lot about God you don't know yet. And that's why it sounds like a bad deal. But how can we be zealous for the Lord, not be slothful in zeal. This is part about being a Canadian is that we have mastered so much technology that we can be as slothful as we want to. You can work like 20 hours a week on minimum wage 
and and still have enough money to spend all the rest of your time playing the best video games. That's a weird accomplishment. You know, 200 years ago, you had to work all the time or you died. Right? I think this is why sometimes older folks in our church, they just look around and go, what's going on with you guys? Like, I went to school and then I worked on the farm for five hours every day. Or you died. You just like starved to death. We're like, well, if I don't do anything, the government will hand me a check. It'll be fine. And apparently now they want to give us like next to free internet too. And then we'll get them to give us free iPhones. And then we'll get them to give us free iTunes gift cards so we can have the apps we want on there. We, are, we can be masters of slothfulness. But instead we're meant to live fervent in spirit, boiling over in the Lord. Amen? So, it's 11.30. If you're newer here, I would usually go for another 15 minutes. Seriously, I'm not joking, but I'm getting tired, so I'm, like, just in life, so uh, it's shortening down, but I'm getting old. I'm almost 40. Fervent, right? i got to boil over, okay? 15 minutes of boiling over. I, in love, I want to charge you in the Lord. I want to charge you in the Lord to kill everything that keeps you from being boiling over for Jesus. Isn't it time? Like, do you want to die lazy, uh, lazy in the Lord? Okay. If you're over 50, I'm leaving you alone. You guys are great. You're setting a great example. Okay, 60. <laughs> okay, prove it. But let me love you. I really mean this. Do you really want offense at at your old church to keep you from being zealous for Jesus? Do you really want just like bondage to a drug or pornography to keep you from going to your grave on fire for Christ? Do you really want like your friends to be the anchors around your neck that are choking you out for being a hero in the kingdom of God? Do you really want money worries to be the reason why the missionaries and church you go to also have money worries? Because we haven't gotten to seeing that God is amazingly generous, especially with those who are amazingly generous. Shouldn't the goal be to have every part of our life on the altar? Because every part of Jesus' life was on the altar, and now every single second of Jesus' existence is for our good. Hello? Don't we believe this yet? This is the truth. By incarnation and birth and suffering and death and truth and miracles, Jesus went through the grave and the cross in order to be a Savior who never sleeps and has all authority in heaven on earth and unstoppable resurrection power so that every second of our lives could be under His shepherding gaze. Do we know this yet? Don't be conformed to the world. Whatever it is you're believing instead is garbage. But you believe it. So be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You have all of Christ and all the Spirit and all the love of the Father. This 
is the truth and everything else is satanic fish hooks meant to drag you down and slow you down and trip you up and make you his servant and rob you of your eternity of glory. Right? And I know I'm supposed to be saying we instead of you, but today I want to hit you with yous. What if this is the last time I get to preach to you? And I didn't hit you in your armor that needs to break. So I can get at your heart. Drop the booze. Drop the weed. Drop the boobs. Drop the boyfriend. Drop the girlfriend. Drop the whatever you need to. The best thing that can happen to you is to die for Jesus. Guys, I think about this stuff. Darnell, I don't want you to talk at Calvary anymore. Every time you get up here, I remember what you guys have already sacrificed for Jesus. I feel unworthy to be in the room. I think of Scott's friend who's been in prison for like 10 years now because of Jesus. Missed his entire son's childhood. I don't feel worthy to be in the same world as that guy. I know God's gracious. But what that does is like, whatever God's given for me to do, I need to do it for Him. Amen? It's not my road right now. But whatever is in front of me is meant to be responded to with the boiling zeal of the Holy Spirit as a sacrifice on the altar of the Father for the glory of Jesus. Amen? It happened. It finally happened. (laughs) So, guys, I'm calling you to supreme warfare. You know what's going to happen? Sometime within the next 24 hours, something's going to happen that's going to so peeve you, rip you off, disappoint you, hurt you. And those old thought patterns are going to come back. I'm not getting what I want. I'm not getting what I deserve. I deserve better than this. You might even be experiencing it right now. I'm supposed to be out for lunch in 10 minutes and they still got to sing a song and they're going to get the kids and children's ministry and then the parking lot's going to be scary. <laughs> Let's die for God's glory. Whenever we're not getting what we want, it's a gift. It's an opportunity. And then what you do is you go, okay, this is about Jesus. Jesus, give me a scripture to obey so I can sink my teeth into something specific to do for you. There's this every excuse. I can't do this. I can't. I don't have to because of this. this, No, I'm here for Jesus. Amen? Amen. And, okay, the band's going to come up, and this is what I'm going to say. Don't miss out on an opportunity to help the church get ready for opening day. This is our time to sow seed in God's sight, saying that we are contributing body members to this move. And if you can't come, I want you to write a big check.
because obviously you're doing something else that's more important. And hopefully it's making money, and you can give some of that to those of us who are spending their Saturdays cleaning up and then going home and cleaning up their own house so that you can have a clean building to move into soon. Don't miss this opportunity to contribute to the kingdom of God. And then don't miss the next one. And then don't miss the next one. And then don't miss the next one. Amen? Amen. And then even if you do come next Saturday, I want you to write a check. (laughs) I'm only half kidding. Because you know one of the biggest reasons, the biggest excuses we have for not living the sacrifice to the Lord? I can't afford it. There's not enough money. Lies. Let's worship the Lord. Let's all stand together. I'm going to pray for us. King Jesus, I I give you my life again. I give you this church. God, as we bring this phase of our life to an end, and it's been on the altar, and you're planning on resurrecting us in a separate location or a different location soon. Father, I pray that each one of us would take to heart what you're doing, that we are being transformed. And I pray we would keep up with you in our walk with you, in our hearts, in our minds. And that, Lord, we really would be figuring out what is good and acceptable and perfect in your sight as we do this.